This podcast is made possible by NoCD. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient OCD therapy. NoCD therapists are trained in exposure and response prevention, otherwise known as ERP therapy, which is the gold standard treatment for OCD. With NoCD, you can do virtual, live, face-to-face video sessions with one of their licensed, specialty-trained therapists, and they accept most major insurance plans. To find out more about NoCD, visit NoCD.com to book a free 15-minute call. We're hot. We're fun. We're crying. But we're trying. We've got looks. We've got books. Also, we're sad. Sad Sad girls girls who read. read. Hi, sad girls. Today, we are so excited. We did The Rules of Inheritance, the memoir by Claire Bidwell-Smith a couple of weeks ago, and we actually have Claire coming onto the podcast today. She's a therapist, renowned grief expert, and the author of three books of nonfiction. So not just The Rules of Inheritance, but after this, When Life is Over, Where Do We Go? And Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. We're so excited to have her on. We're going to talk all things grief, all things writing, all things being a sad girl. Buckle up. Let's get into it. Let's go, sad girls. Let's fucking go. So, Claire, we start each of our episodes, Allegra and I, talking about our mental health for the week. And we ask each other, are you a sad girl this week? So we wanted to ask you, Claire, are you a sad girl this week? And if so, tell us about it. And how are you coping? (laughs) I am not a sad girl this week. I think maybe last week or the week before you would have gotten me at sad girl, but not (laughs) maybe because I'm going to see Taylor Swift with all my daughters tomorrow. So we're all excited about that. But uh, we recently went through a big move and it's just been so disruptive. So there's been some sad girl weeks. Totally. That's totally understandable. Are y'all big Taylor fans? Oh yeah. I've got a 17 year old stepdaughter, 14 year old daughter, an 11 year old daughter, we're going with all of our best friends. They've been planning their eras outfits for weeks. <laughs> it's a whole thing. I'm going folklore. I was going to ask. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> amazing. I did. Um, I guess I did midnights. I had like bejeweled pants when I went okay. to New York. Yep. I love it. Wow. I'm, so I'm dying to go in LA. I am so beyond jealous. It's going to be fun. Yeah. There's all this talk of her like possibly launching Taylor's version of 1989 in LA. So yeah. I feel like you're going to get something really cool at tomorrow's show. Let's see. <laughs> so yeah, not a sad girl week. Oh, thank God. Well, one of us has to not be sad. Yeah. I mean, Allegra and I, we were like fine this week ish. It wasn't Fair. too bad. No, we survived. You said for yourself, Aaron. <laughs> I said, honey, it's been a dark. No, I'm kidding. I had a really happy week too. I don't know what's in the air, but. Good things. Good things. We know. Okay, I feel like this. I feel like you obviously kind of answered this in your book, but we like to ask this to our authors. Like, how did this book choose you? How did you choose this book? Why was it important for you to put it out at the time that you did? The Rules of Inheritance, I wrote when I was like 30 years old. It took me years to write it. Um, it is about losing both of my parents to cancer by the time I was 25. My mom died when I was 18, and my dad when I was 25. And I'm an only child. So I kind of was thrust into young adulthood um, in a really different place than most of my peers. And, you know, I was always a writer as an only child. I was like kind of lonely and weird. And I just read books all the time. Um, And I just had always been um, writing and writing poetry and wanting to be a writer growing up. And when my parents got sick at the same time, 
it was kind of my outlet, you know, to understand and think about what was going on um, with all of it. And so when they died, I just kept writing and I was working as a journalist at that time and wasn't really thinking about becoming a therapist down the road. I don't know if like the book found me or it just, it never felt like I had a choice. Like I had to write it. And I'm so glad I did. I was just looking at it this past weekend. It's been 11 years since it was published and longer since I wrote it. And um, I was just looking for something that my father had said to me when he was dying and it was there in the book. And I was so glad because I didn't really remember. And I was like, thank God I wrote all this down when I did, (laughs) Mm because I can go back and look at it. Um, But I really just... I wrote that book when I was 30 and I was a new mom. I just had a baby and I was working in hospice as a bereavement counselor. And I was sitting with people day in and day out who were going through losses. And there was so much confusion around grief and around the five stages around grief in general. And at first I wanted to write like a grief book about grief. And then the more I thought about that, that seemed really boring. And I thought the best way that I could really kind of talk about grief and and explain the way I wanted to show how fluid grief is and how you can come in and out of it. And the stages are guideposts, but not, you know, a formula. I was like, well, I I think the best way to do that is to tell my own story and to just show, show, don't tell, right. That's the old writing rule. Um, And so that's what I did. I relate to so much of this in terms of like, I'm in the process right now of writing a memoir and just this, like, I have no other choice. It's so painful and it's so difficult, but I feel like when you've survived something that is so unfathomable, sometimes it feels like it's just like, it feels like my duty, not like I owe it to people, but like, I I really want to put that out into the world. So I really get that calling. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't write a novel y'all, but uh, (laughs) I wrote a one person show and it was about my grief and my trauma. And I totally understand Thank you. It's like this thing that just must come out of you. Like, I hate yeah. to say this, but it felt like this is gross. Like I, it was like almost like a poop, like you had to get it out or it would have been uncomfortable, which leads me to my next question. I'm just okay. kidding. So Claire, I love the way that you wrote this in prose. How did you decide? Because you were a poet. I just, it was it felt like drinking water. It just felt so easy to read. How'd you decide to write it like that? It took me a long time. Um, I've always just loved poetry, loved, you know, just memoirs and books. And when my mom died, when I was 18, I didn't know anybody who had gone through anything like that. And so I turned to books like I always did. And I read every memoir I could get my hands on, you know, anything where somebody went through something really hard. It could have been all kinds of stuff, a car crash, alcoholism, like just, it didn't have to be, you know, dead parents, but just anything where someone got through something really hard and came out the other side. And so when I was writing my book, I turned to a lot of those and I just thought a lot about language. And I thought about, I didn't want this to be really heavy. It is a heavy story and there's dark moments in it. Um, But I wanted it to not feel heavy when you were reading it, you know? And so the sentences are short, they're light. There's, you know, that sometimes there's a single line on a page on a, you know, between paragraphs. And, and that was really intentional. And I just wanted to give the reader space and like breath and not, you know, sit on them with my hard, scary story. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, so I appreciate you 
feeling that and experiencing that because it was intentional. Is it cathartic for you to read other people's memoirs? Like sometimes Erin will say, it's like always the joke of the podcast that I pick the dark memoirs and she picks like the really awesome fiction books. And she's like, Allegra, I'm concerned. Like I picked can- yours though, Claire. I yes, picked yours. Pick so don't get it twisted. Say. But Erin always says to me, like, why do you like <laughs> the trauma books so much? But I find them so cathartic. I feel like it's Absolutely. so healing to read about someone's real story, even though my therapist is like, put it down, please put it down. <laughs> Do you feel that way? And was it like that for you during your writing and grieving process? Yeah, it was really cathartic. It's always cathartic to me to read other people's real stories. And again, to see someone else go through something that feels just as hard and yet prevail or offer tools and insights. You know, I get a lot of ideas, but you know, we go about our day-to-day lives when we're walking around with the trauma and we don't often meet other people who are in that space at the same time. And so having that access in a book can be so healing and just feel like just not alone in what you're going through. Were there any memoirs that you, like, if you can think of two that you really turned to during that time that just have stuck with you? Gosh, the early ones, you know, that I was reading were like Dorothy Allison and Mary Carr, like Liars Club and Bastard Out of Carolina. Like those were like my early favorites. You know, I always think about them because they were like the pioneers of like modern day memoir. It was like this shift away from writing biographies. You know, it was like writing like a literary story of a person's life and really infusing it with beauty and prose and poetry. And I think we've come so far since then. There's so many gorgeous memoirs out there now, and people are taking so many different liberties with how you can tell a story. You know, you could write about just an hour of your life and make it somehow into a whole book. There's a French writer I love named Annie Arnaud. Um, She's written a ton of books. Um, Her very first book was about an illegal abortion she had in the sixties in France. And she went back 30 years after she wrote that book, she revisited that that same experience, but wrote about it from her perspective 30 years later. So it's like the same story, but it's so different told like the first one is so raw and she's so young and it's just happened. The next one is 30 years later, like what it's been like to carry that experience into her life and what it means and how she can look at herself as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's so interesting that we can continue to look at our lives and our stories over and over through different lenses. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a therapist now. I've been a therapist for 15 years and so much of therapy is about sitting with someone and looking at their narrative. What is the story you carry? You know, are there pieces that can we reframe this? Can we look at it through a different lens? You know, are there pieces you can let go of? Are there pieces that you're, you know, missing and not avoiding here that could be part of the story that would change it? Um, where does a story begin and end? You know, it's, it's fascinating to me. Like the connection mm. between like therapist and and writer and someone who loves other people's stories is so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's been a big part of my work and enabled me to really. Um, I'm just always so curious. Like I I was just sitting with a new client before I hopped on with you guys, and I love the beginning of sitting with a new client. It's like hearing their story, their initial story of how how they're carrying it. You know how they're going to present it, where they start with it, where you know where it where. It, um, peaks and crests and like who the main people are in it. And it's, it's their life, but it's, it's also a version of how they carry it and how they tell it. Wow. Mm. <laughs> I love your brain, Claire. Aaron is speechless. I love your brain. what do you say, Allegra? I said Aaron is speechless. I'm, speech- for, the I'm, I'm speechless. for the first time ever. I can't <laughs> shut up. I do have a question, Claire. You were saying that grieving was very lonely because you were a 
only child. I'm also an only child. I was a weirdo. All I did was read books and had imaginary friends. Like, thank God I'm your, you were similar. But how did you experience grief as an only child? And how did you navigate that? I think it's been like an unfolding process. Um, you know, it's, it's having lost both of my parents and my whole immediate family. It's just me. And there's no one I'm the only keeper of memories, you know, there's no one to turn to and say, Hey, remember when we were 12 and like mom took us to that place. I can't verify any of my memories. You know, I can't mm. go deeper with them. I so wish I could ask, or I'll have like a hazy memory of something. And I'd be like, who was that weird business friend of dad's, you know, and I can't ask and it's frustrating. So there's a grief that's, that comes with that, with like a loss of memories and people and, and things like that. Um, there is the grief that comes with, you know, I'm the only one who really grieves them as much, you know, there's nobody else to share that with and to kind of share that pain with. I have found so much solace in meeting other people who are grieving and doing the work that I've done. I've worked a lot with motherless daughters and Hope Edelman. and We've run retreats for women who've lost moms. And it's so powerful to sit in a room full of other women and I can look around at them before we've even spoken and to realize that they know something about me that regular mm. people don't just because they've gone through this shared experience, you know, totally. my mom lost her mom from cancer when my mom was 18. And so I gave my mom Cheryl Strayed's wild, which I, I, love that. I freaking love that book. But my mom always talked about it as like a, a language that nobody could speak unless you've been through it. And I thought that was in any kind of trauma finding, your people that understand you, your community of people who have experienced that is so healing in so mm -hmm. many ways. Yeah, it really is. It's beautiful. Cheryl Strayed's amazing. I love Danny Shapiro too. She writes beautiful memoirs. Um, yeah, a lot of loss through both of their lives. As you were writing this, did it help you move through the grief or do you did you find that you had to really work through that grief before you were able to put it on the page? Both. Um, I was just teaching a, a grief writing course with Rebecca Wolf. Do you know who she is? She wrote a memoir called All of This about the loss of her husband. Um, it came out last year. It's really beautiful. But um, we were just talking about this with our group of, of attendees and the idea that sometimes when you, it's so helpful to go back. We were talking about specifically how one woman in the group was was in survival mode when she was going through her loss, right? And she wasn't able to really even think about it or face it or acknowledge it or really kind of be present to it all the time. And in going back in the writing of it, she was able to almost relive it and grieve in a new way because she was walking back through the experience. And so I think that that's been a similar process for me, um, being able to reflect on it and grieve in a new way for you know the person I was at the time that who I went when I went through that you know, this 18 year old version of myself where I'm able to go and kind of be with her and grieve for her and with her in this way that that's really powerful. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> you guys, we never are speechless. My God, yeah. speechless again. I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity because I just feel so many, like, I feel so much connection to you in terms of like therapist, writer, having gone through something. It's just, it's so awesome to be here with you. Oh, thank you. This might, this kind of like goes along with this um, idea or question. You can tell us if you don't want to answer it. So please, like if that is too personal, something that really stood out to me in the book is you talked about your abortion and how in hindsight, it might've saved you years of suffering. Could you elaborate on that? And like the ways that maybe having that kid could have helped the grief? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's such a complicated idea, right? Um, I'm so like pro-choice and, and, and there's so many layers around that, but I look back at the experience of, I got pregnant about a year to date after my mother died. So I was 19 and I was with my, you know, steady boyfriend at the time, but um, my first choice and inclination was to have an abortion, which I did. And it was a fairly, you know, good experience um, as they can go. Um, and then I looked back at it years later, especially after I became a mother. And I thought, what would it have been like to have a baby at that time and to become a mother and to have um, something anchoring me in this way that I was so like reckless and kind of lost in the world. And um, I spent a lot of time trying to like run from my grief and just, you know, there's a wildness that comes with losing a parent uh, that, you know, Cheryl Strayed writes about, Danny Shapiro writes about that. I'm sure you guys understand and feel it's, there's a, there's a weird liberation that comes, you know, with my friends who have parents who are constantly like nitpicking them or still on top of them or wondering what they're doing. There's suddenly this ability to be like, well, nobody's looking after me. Nobody cares what I'm doing. I'm going to push all the limits and go to all the edges. And I've thought often, I wonder if, if I'd had a child, if that would have prevented me, but then that leads me to like, wow, I probably would have been a really shitty mom (laughs) because if I hadn't worked through that stuff, (laughs) then no, it would not have been a good idea to have a kid at that time. Um, But it's layered, you know, it's just very complex. I have three kids now and becoming a mother has just been the best thing that has ever happened in my life. And it's also made me feel so much closer to my mom. You know, Mm -hmm. I hear her voice all the time in mine. I see her in my own children. Um, It's, you know. Okay, sorry, I keep talking. It's been hard though, too. It was like, you know, I remember after my first daughter was born, sitting in the nursery with her and just sitting and holding her and weeping because I looked at her and I thought, oh, this is why I miss my mother so much. It was like this instant bond, this deep physical connection, this time that I'd had with my mom that I don't even remember. You know, I was sitting there with her thinking, God, my mother held me like this. I don't remember it, but like it lives in me somewhere. And it brought me so much closer to her, but also really helped me understood why it was so hard to lose her. You know, I really hadn't understood that. And I had like beat myself up for still being sad about my mom being gone for so long. And I was like, I should be over this by now. I should be better by now. I shouldn't miss her so much. And then I was holding this baby and I was like, oh, of course I miss her this much. Um, and there was a lot of beauty in that, but it was hard too. Mm-hmm. I remember my mother-in-law at the time was like, worried that I had postpartum. And she was like, I don't remember crying this much after my babies were born. And, and just that feeling again of like, she didn't get it. You know, it was so tied up in the loss of my mother for me, but it was beautiful too. Like when you talked about in the book, grief and grieving being a lifelong process mm-hmm. and not necessarily something that you like are done with, which I think a lot of my clients ask about, like, is there going to be a point where like, I'm just over this and it never pops up again, but it's, I ask that all I'm like, so when, when are we done? Like, can you give me an end date, please? <laughs> right. No. Yeah. So, oh, what were you going to say? No, go ahead. So to say like, what does grief look like for you now, even if it's not active, as you kind of said in the book, like, are there times where you find that you fall back into a different, let's say, stage of grief? You know, I think all losses are different and all our relationships with the people we lose. Some grief is longer and larger than others, um, even though they were beautiful relationships. I grieve my mother more than my father. And I'm like very open and honest about that. He and I had a 
less complex relationship. He lived a longer, fuller life than she did. He and I had a better ending than she and I had, you know, there's lots of reasons around that. Um, I will never stop missing my mother. Grief still arises. She's been gone for 25, 20, 27 years now. Um, and it still makes me sad. You know, I look at my friends who have mothers and they're raising their children and their moms are around, or I just miss her. Or I just, you know, I really like, it's not that I'm carrying grief and sadness all the time, but there's definitely moments where it comes up where I think, what would my life be like if she were here? Um, who would I've been as a woman? And what would it be like for my kids to have her? So there's a lot that that still exists. And I think that it's not that we, we, we can stop grieving. We can stop actively mourning, but we carry those losses still with us. And we carry the ways that they've changed our lives with us. Absolutely. It is really like a never ending process. And it's okay to say like, I might feel this grief for the rest of my life. Like it, there's power in that. Like, I don't ever need to fully move past this. Yeah. I don't think we ever have to let go of them or move on from them. We can move forward and carry them with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This podcast is made possible by NoCD. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient OCD therapy. NoCD therapists are trained in exposure and response prevention, otherwise known as ERP therapy, which is the gold standard treatment for OCD. With NoCD, you can do virtual, live, face-to-face video sessions with one of their licensed, specialty-trained therapists, and they accept most major insurance plans. To find out more about NoCD, visit NoCD.com to book a free 15-minute call. So this book is the central theme, of course. Specifically, it relates to parents that have passed. Do you, Claire, work with people who are grieving parents who are alive but are incapable or abusive, et cetera? And can you speak a little to that? I do a little bit of work in that arena, um, but there's um, there's an amazing book that came out a couple of years ago called Mother Hunger um, by a woman named Kelly McDaniel, and she really addresses a lot of that, specifically around moms, obviously. But I, for years, had women coming to me and saying, um, "Do you do grief work for you know mothers who are still living? Um, mm-hmm. I have a complicated mom, or um, you know we're estranged, or she was abusive, or substance abuse, or mental illness. You know all kinds of things, and that grief is very real and really needs to be addressed. It's a different, nuanced grief than it is for someone who's gone. Um, but Kelly McDaniel does a beautiful job in addressing that in her book, Mother Hunger. Um, there's another book I really like by a woman named Bethany Webster called Healing the Inner Mother or the the Inner... I can't remember. Her name is Bethany Webster. And it's something about the the inner mother and working around that same kind of mother loss. Um, and father loss too. There's an amazing book called the, the Fatherless Daughter Project. So much of this sadly focuses on women and like poor guys are like left out of this equation all the time. Um, men and grief is a really sad story. Like men are not taught to grieve. They're not given space to grieve. They're not encouraged to grieve. There's not books about the, you know, it's changing. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, more and more people are starting to talk about that, but it's like, you're looking at motherless daughters, fatherless daughters, you know, mother hunger for women, all these various things. And, um, 
I, I hope that we continue to create more space for men in grief. Allegra and I could talk about that for hours. There's so much work to do with men in the mental health field. Yeah. I love that you asked that, Erin, because as I was reading this, like something that came up for me, and and I feel like this is going to sound super, super awful. So like, uh, but I'll willingly admit it. Like I was almost envious that you had what you did with your mom, because I've never had that. And she's alive, you yeah. know, and it just brought up like, wow, like I never had that. And I have to grieve that I never had that. And it made me feel like a piece of shit as I was reading your book, because it's like, this woman has literally lost her mother. Yeah. No, that's very real. And like, I want to validate that for you. That's so understandable. And so real. There's another great book called mothers who can't love, which you might be interested in. It focuses on narcissistic mothers, substance abuse, mental illness, um, physical abuse. Yeah. I mean, there's Jeanette McCurdy's recent book. I'm glad my mother died. I love like, that book. There's a lot of like growing awareness around all of this. And it's so important. We yeah. go through loss in many different ways. We grieve for so many different things. It does not have to be the death of a person. Mm. No. But I do think, Allegra, you said that you were reading this and it brought up the grief inside yourself, even though it was different grief, but you were connecting over grief. So it was, was it cathartic for you, Allegra, to read? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just like heartbreaking for you, Claire, like this book, even like going back to the abortion, like just how alone and like the grief that you had to feel while you were grieving just like broke me. Mm. Aaron, you're grieving your mom. You lost your mom. Father. Um, it's, we're estranged. That's what my one woman shows about. It's like, oh, you're alive, but you just don't care. It's very strange. No, that's really heartbreaking. It's really, really challenging. It's, it's almost easier when someone is physically gone and completely gone, right? Like he's still out there somewhere. So it makes it really difficult. Yeah. Have you, have you looked at that book, the fatherless daughter project? I haven't. I will look at it. I actually, the only book I found about fatherless daughters was called He Never Came Home by Regina Robertson. And I'm actually in the process of working on adopting it into a play, which has been so healing and amazing. And Regina, you're a boss if you're listening. But there's not enough books out there about estrangement abusive parents this book really specifically focuses a lot because father loss is so prevalent in, in abandonment and neglect and abuse. And so it's more, it's not as common that mothers abandon or don't show up for their kids. It's mm-hmm. more common that fathers do. And so that book really dives into that. It's pretty great. I'm going to look at that. That's, that's amazing. It's, it was nice to even just read your book and hear someone else going through similar feelings because all grief is different, but it also feels very similar to me. Yeah. You know, I get it. Yeah. I feel like it brings up different questions too. Like when you said it might like, sometimes it feels easier if they're gone. Like if you're grieving an estranged parent, I know for me, sometimes I feel that guilt of like, should I be reaching out to them? I'm their kid. Is it fucked up? We only have this one life with our parents. Shouldn't I do X, Y, and Z? So there's that like added layer of guilt. I don't know if you feel that Aaron. Yeah. But you have, you have to look out for yourself. And when like a professional is telling you like you need to end this relationship, mm-hmm. uh, but of course there's guilt there. Yeah, absolutely. I've worked with a lot of clients who have had estranged relationships and then that person died. And so then they're going back through all the layers of like choices they made, the boundaries they kept, 
you know, and then grieving who they didn't get to have grieving the actual loss. Like it's just very complicated. Oh yeah. I, w- I worry about that. Lugger and I, I feel like we've talked All about the that. Time, I'm like, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> fuck. Yeah. I think looking out and setting boundaries to take care of yourself and not just keep a relationship because they're your blank, your mother, your father. I think like not letting yourself get abused or whatever is the most important. And um, I love this, a lot of the new philosophy around reparenting. Have you guys been thinking about that or talking about it? Like I love um, Stephanie Fu's book, What My Bones Know. And also Tara Schuster's book, Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies. Like, do you guys know these books? I don't. Maybe we should read that, Erin. I just got What Your Bones Know. My friend just read it and said it was really hard to read, but I feel like we've read A Little Life, so I feel like nothing gets worse. I don't know if you read that, Claire. I haven't read that one. Tragic. But I'm excited to read this because I think it talks about CPTSD. Yeah, both books cover CPTSD. PTSD. And both books are written by women who had abusive childhoods and kind of like it all came like crashing into them in their twenties. And then they had to make big choices. Um, Tara Schuster's by yourself, the fucking lilies is so funny because it opens with her drunk dialing her therapist. I'm not giving anything away because the whole book just starts with that. Talks about it all the time. She's like, I knew I needed to get help when I woke up the next morning and realized I had drunk dialed my therapist multiple times the night before. (laughs) Oh my God. That's amazing. Claire, I'm going to like read all of these books. If I forget one of them, can I email you and ask? Of course. Okay. okay. Because I trust, I trust you with my life. (laughs) Going back now, I struggle with this in my one woman show. Allegra's struggling with this, writing her book, writing about real people. And Mm. it's difficult. Like, were you afraid to write about real people that they would come back and like do something or like like your ex who was abusive yeah Yeah, it's definitely really hard and scary um I had to make the choice and I think all writers should when you're working on something like this of like write that book exactly the way you need to say it and write it try to put them out of your head as much as you can it's hard um and write everything just as you need to say it and then go back and like shape it and fog things and do things, you know, because like, if I had like, his name is changed in the books and the book, his name is Colin. And if I had written, I didn't, I changed it later. So I wrote his real name as I was writing it. I wrote other things that didn't end up staying in there, but I needed to write it all and to say it all and to like write about him specifically and then go back once I had been able to get it all out. Because if I was trying to write of this like fictional kind of character, Colin or something and change his eye color and hair color and the various things that I had to change, um, it just, I wouldn't feel connected to it while I was writing, you know, it would just end up coming out weird. Or at the time um, I was married to my first husband and I was really worried about his mom and what she would think of things. She was really conservative Catholic and like the abortion and like all the other relationships and drinking and various things I wrote about in the book. I was really scared of what she was going to think, but I had to put her out of my head. I was like, I'm not writing this book for this woman. I'm writing this book for me. I'm writing this book for other people who have gone through something similar. And if I write the version of the book that she wants and is going to be okay Mm -hmm. with, it would be a really shitty book. So I've got to write, you know, the truth of this for myself. And, you know, oftentimes I think when you do that, when you really write what you need to write, you can go back and when you see it as a whole, you can feel really proud of it, not as scared. It makes a lot more sense. Or you can also make choices to go back and like change little bits and pieces and take things out. Um, 
I had an editor at one point going through rules of inheritance who pointed out a scene I had written about one of my aunts and um, my mother's sister. And there was a scene where she was kind of drunk and she said something mean to my mom. And it was in, you know, it was in here and there was a tiny little copy edit note that said, is this necessary? It might harm your relationship. It doesn't further the story. And I was like, I sat with it for a minute and at first I wanted it in there. And then I realized I was just still mad at her for that moment. I was still mad about what she said about my mom. I was still mad that she had behaved this way, but it didn't matter to the story, like to the book, it didn't need to be in there. You know, it just didn't. Um, but I needed to write it. I was glad that I wrote it, mm. but then I was able to go back later and take it out. So that would be my advice, like write everything and then go back and find these little pieces that don't need to be there, but you needed to write. That's really good advice. That's iconic advice. Well, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to write this down for sure. Um, this is going to be so unhinged. Please don't answer this, but I feel like please ask okay is that why like we were never clear as to whether or not Colin killed his sister or maybe we were clear it was something that I felt never clear about you know it was something that I felt afraid of and wondered about and I don't believe he did now you know like there's been so much evidence around that situation and what happened and but he was a scary guy you know and there was always this piece of me that felt afraid of him and afraid of what he might have done or could have done or would do um, and so that ambiguity was, was truthful in that it was something I carried. I had a call in, I had a call in real bad and he went to jail many times and really scared me. And I think like just the idea that he might have, like that made me understand who he was. Like we, we knew this guy. I know what he looks like. Like I can see him. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Oh, Allegra, did you have a call-in? I've had other types, but no. <laughs> luckily, <laughs> luckily not a call-in, but boy, if I had a, a Jerry, a Frank, and, and a fucking... A Pete. Yeah, we've had a Pete. I've had quite a few of them. Oh. <laughs> uh, a question I, I was thinking about as I read this also is like you talked about, I think I quoted it verbatim. Um, you were talking about a silver lining and finding a silver lining in pain. And I think you said like, there doesn't necessarily need to be one, or it doesn't need to happen for a reason. Um, do you believe that things happen for a reason? Have you found a silver lining in your parents' death? And what would you say to clients who think that like this happened for a reason? It's tricky. You know, I think we want to make meaning out of these losses. We want to have you know, some, we want to be able to assign a reason to things because it's so hard to sit with the not knowing and the just kind of existential, like what, why is this happening? Why me? Why them? Why this kind of thing? So I think often we go through maybe phases or periods of time in which we do assign meaning and then it changes. Um, I don't think there's necessarily meaning in anybody dying. I don't know if we ever find true meaning or like acceptance or let it be okay. You know, it's not okay that my parents died early. It's not okay that I've had to live most of my adult life without them. That said, I've been able to create a really meaningful life for myself, you know, and that said, I've been able to bring them into it and to honor them in different ways and to, um, you know, make, make it worth something. Um, I would still take them back in a second, but instead of everything I've done, but I did have to strive to like make it worth something. You know, I was I was like I can't go through all this 
this agony and this grief and these losses and not have it mean something. Mm -hmm. So that's the work I do. That's the way I um, work with, you know, in grief in general and write books and talk to my kids about them just to make it worth something. And I think a lot of us strive to do that in our own processes. That made me think of how, how do you talk to your kids about death? I feel like we don't talk to kids about death at all. We don't, but we need to. I yeah. think you know, I talk to them very upfront and very openly about it. I think we're afraid to talk to kids about death. Um, we're afraid because we don't have the answers that they have questions for. We're afraid that we're going to make them sad or confuse them. We're afraid because it brings up our own pain. So we just don't talk to them, but that actually mm -hmm. does them a great disservice. You know, um, kids are creative and they're thoughtful and they come up with their own weird thinking around it if we're not helping them frame it. Sometimes that can be unhealthy and sometimes they can like accidentally stumble into weird pathways or coping methods, you know, if we're not helping steer them through it. And also inevitably we all go through loss and grief at some point. So if you're shielding your kid all of their life and then they're out there in the world in their twenties and thirties and get hit with a loss, mm -hmm. they've had no role modeling for it. You know, well, if we can role model healthy grieving as adults and as parents, then they can have that as a tool to fall back on. Um, so with my kids, we talk very openly about it. I'm very open about my grief, about, you know, modeling that it's okay to feel sad and to have, you know, sad girl weeks and like have those things. And then also have, you know, good days and move through it and be like, I can hold multitudes. I can have grief and sadness and thrive and get shit done and be happy. And, um, teaching kids that is really important. Mm. Yeah. I feel like I have three things. I hope I remember all three things that came up as you were talking. One, when I was a therapist in training, I will never forget this grief. I guess it was like a training. Another therapist came in and did it with us. And they said, if someone has died, like say to the kid, your grandpa has died instead of like grandpa has gone to the balloon factory and totally. will never be seen again. <laughs> because like yeah. you said, like kids are intelligent and it's going to be more confusing. Mm -hmm. And I also learned certain things like, don't say, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry that your husband has died. Mm -hmm. And that always stuck with me because your loss isn't even like, doesn't depict it accurately. Yeah. Being real is more, is, is much more better path than, uh, it's a much better path than just trying to to be vague about things or to be like comforting in a distant way. It doesn't help anybody. Yeah. And one of the things I always do, a tip somebody gave me early on in being a mom, it was another woman who'd lost her parents. And she said, never refer to them as like my mom, my dad, like my mom loved this. She said, always say your grandmother to your kids so that they have a sense of their grandparents. Right. So I'll say all the time, like, oh, grandma Sally loved, you know, to cook this or your, your grandpa Jerry, you know, did this or showed me how to do this so that it was never like just my dad. Um, and that really, I felt like changed things. It gave them just a, a definite, like better sense of having grandparents on my side. Wow. I'm remembering for the first time now, because my grandmother passed when my mom was 18. So I never met her, but I learned very early that she was not with us. And I was always an actor. I was always a storyteller since I was a child. I was a nut. I would um, write letters to her nightly and just pile them up. And my mom found them and like stacks. Like I was like, so grandma today I stole a candy bar. And my mom told me about this recently. And I was like, of course I did. Of course I did. That's but awesome. I mean, 
Like, I love that. I would be so thrilled if my kids wrote letters to my mom. Okay. I thought it was crazy. Thank you. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Grief is wild. Grief. mm, It's Allegra, not the balloon factory. People say, or like the fairy, whatever. And it's like, no, they didn't go into the fairy land. They're like, he's up in the clouds now. And then like clouds can become scary. Like, am I going to go up in there all of a sudden? Or like, you know, is my friend going to end up in the clouds? You know, it's like, so you have to be careful with these (laughs) ideas. Absolutely. The second thing I wanted to say is I love how you talked about how it's okay to have good days. Cause I find with people who are grieving, it feels like the grief doesn't count or the person no longer matters if you are able to have a better day, which is just like such a misconception. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think people think they have to be one thing or another. They either have to be sad and grieving or happy and like, you know, thriving, but it's, it's all the things We're all the things all the time, you know, and Mm -hmm. we have to allow space for that. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who lost a child. And I think that like, what is happening is they don't want to grieve or I guess more so like they're holding on to like the pain and the sadness and not working through it because they feel like if they do, they're going to lose that memory. What would you say to someone who is feeling that way? First of all, loss of a child is so huge. And I think giving someone as much time and space and bandwidth to go through their process is so important. Um, But you're right. I think that's a really interesting point that you touch on that I talk a lot about. And I think most people miss that, that one of the reasons we get stuck in our grief or one of the reasons we get stuck in guilt or anger around loss is because we're afraid to let go of it. Because if we're afraid that if we let go of it, it means we're letting go of our person or our connection to them. Um, and so we, we hold on to grief sometimes as a way of holding on to our person. Uh, and what I like to tell people is that there's so many other ways we can hold on to them. You know, we can explore spiritual realms. We can find ways to honor them. We can find ways to bring them into the world and, um, with other people around us. And I think that, um, we, we, we kind of overlook some of those other ways to hold on to them and to stay connected to them. Um, and then that's why we get stuck in our grief. Claire, do you ever have days like now that you feel a lot of grief? And if so, what are your favorite coping? I love to ask therapists what their coping skills are. Cause I'm like, they've got to figure it out. It's like, what, <laughs> what do you do? Like, to help? <laughs> you, you have to have it figured out. That's what I believe. So what do you do to make yourself feel better when you're in a bad place? Um, I don't carry the grief as much anymore. You know, I have flickering moments of it or certain anniversaries will be really hard, but my coping methods for mental health in general are like yoga, meditation, you know, breath work, um, just really trying to be present and unpack my shit and like give Mm -hmm. myself space for it. I think especially therapists, we don't always have things figured out, but people who are therapists tend to be really good at taking care of everybody else and not themselves. And so (laughs) even more so as therapists, we have to like make sure that we are taking time out for ourselves. You know, I can sit all day and help other people um, Mm -hmm. as a way of just avoiding my own stuff. And I know that. And so I have to really sit and like make space and be actively working on myself and addressing my own, my own things. Oh, I love that. I, I used to teach yoga and I practice yoga and Allegra and I, just talked to an author who sat a lot of meditation retreats and Allegra and I want to go on a silent retreat. We don't think we can do it, but we want to go. 
<laughs> Miss Allegra will be talking to herself in the bathroom. <laughs> I love it. I do not want to go on a silent retreat. I think that sounds awesome. I think, you know, whether it's a retreat, whether it's yoga, whether it's meditation or a breathwork workshop, like whatever you can do to just carve out that time. Cause it doesn't just fall in our laps. You know, there's a million ways to distract ourselves. There's a million things to do every day. There's a million ways to just like avoid whatever we're sitting with that's uncomfortable. And so just creating that space, even just like taking a weekend where you're quiet, it's powerful. Totally. Writing that down. Right. I'm transcribing this whole interview and hanging it in my room. (laughs) It's my Bible. I'm going to read it every morning. Um, I wanted to ask you about, so like you, which just amazed me, went into working in hospice after you had experienced so much grief and loss and something I often get asked by people, basically I had like extreme OCD that like almost ended my life. And now I'm an OCD specialist. And I often get asked, how do you work with something that was that close to you? Like, isn't that really hard? But for me, it feels like the most meaningful, powerful, like it's almost like the work, not kind of like the worse their OCD is like the more meaning I find in it. Do you yeah. feel that way as a therapist? Like, do you ever get asked, how do you work with something like death that is as close to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I mean, I think too, like it makes us such great practitioners. Like, would you want to see someone for OCD who had never experienced it? You know, would you want to see someone for grief who had never lost anyone? Like, yes, it's, it is hard sometimes and triggering and evocative of our own journeys and our own traumas. But at the same time, like that's where we're making meaning of it. That's where we're making it worth something. That's where we're imparting all the tools and all the hard work we did to give someone else, you know, it's amazing. It's beautiful work. I loved hospice. I still am a huge advocate for hospice. Um, my dad died in hospice and I didn't know anything about hospice going into that experience with him. They saved, you know, my life in so many ways. I, it's so hard to be a caregiver. I could not have taken care of my father at home alone at 25 without hospice there. He couldn't have had the peaceful death he had without hospice. And so going back into that work years later, it was really meaningful to me to be able to support that mission, to provide that to other people, to walk into a house where someone had just, you know, signed up their loved one on hospice and they were freaking out. I, I sat in that, you know, same exact experience. So I could sit with them and be like, I really understand where you are right now and help people through that. It was really meaningful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Claire, you said that your other book the grief and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how anxiety and grief are connected? And I guess how it's like the sixth stage, I think you say, or like the the other, the missing stage of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's my most recent book that came out called Anxiety, the Missing Stage of Grief. And mm-hmm. I started having panic attacks pretty quickly after my mom died, ended up in the ER with them. I was, you know, had a lot of hypochondria, a lot of anxiety, panic attacks, social phobias, like a million things became afraid of flying. Like I just became an anxious wreck where I had never been anxious before. And it took me a long time to really understand it and to connect the pieces. I thought that that was like a separate problem and like my Mm. grief and loss because nobody else was connecting those dots for me either. And it wasn't until I was in a trauma class uh, years later in grad school and realized, you know, like, oh, this is, this is because my parents died duh. You know, like it seemed so obvious when I finally kind of had that light bulb moment. And, and I very intentionally titled that book, anxiety, the missing stage of grief, because it's often a light bulb moment for other people where they're like, Oh, 
I'm anxious because my dad died six months ago. Like that's why I'm having panic attacks and somehow I haven't made that connection the same way I didn't. Um, and it makes a lot of sense when we go through it. Sometimes there's actual trauma. Um, a lot of times we're facing our mortality for the first time in a very profound way. And we're like, oh my God, if this can happen, what else can happen? Um, we begin to worry about other people. We begin to look at the world through a catastrophic lens. You know, we start to have questions about religion, spirituality, afterlife, big things that we've never thought about before. You know, we, there's so many reasons that we develop anxiety after a loss. Um, and no one had, no one had written about it. No one was talking about it. So I started, I put out a couple of articles online initially and people were so responsive to it. Like that was back in like 2012. And, um, then I published this book. This book came out actually during the pandemic, which was amazing. Like right in the middle of the entire world experiencing grief and anxiety, um, which was wild. I didn't see that coming when I wrote the book. Um, and it's been helpful. It's, I think it started to shift an awareness around the connection between grief and anxiety. There's a lot you can do to work on it, which is great. I'm having a light bulb moment right now. Cause I, my panic attacks and my anxiety started after my estrangement, like six mm-hmm. months after. And I'm like, oh, oh, because yeah. <laughs> you think you're just, or I, I was like, I'm just crazy. I'm just, I'm yeah. just nuts. But that does make a lot of sense. Claire, you should be a therapist. Like you <laughs> are good at this. You're like really good at this. Allegra, we need to read that next. Absolutely. On the list. It goes to like, instead of just treating the symptom, also looking at like what's underlying it, I think as therapists, sometimes we can get like, let's do CBT. Let's just address the symptom without looking at like, is there a cause? Is there a root to it that we also need to explore and address? Yeah, absolutely. I have two more books coming out. Um, one's coming out this fall and it's a workbook for clinicians who like other therapists who want to work in grief. And then I have another book coming out next March called Conscious Grieving and all about how like leaning into grief is really transformative and um, there's a beauty to really acknowledging and leaning into our grief. Allegra, we need all of these. Yeah, we're going to have to have you back if you weren't traumatized by today. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, <this is> great. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to add to this? Like anything that you want to promote? Any comments, questions? Yeah, I've got these couple of books coming out. I offer a lot of programs online. Um, I do online trainings for other therapists who want to specialize in grief. They can get certified with me. And um, I have a mother loss training also coming up soon for women therapists who want to work in mother loss. I have an in-person grief retreat in September in Marin County. Um, I do one-on-one work with people. I do grief groups. Um, I have a weekly Tuesday grief group called Conscious Grieving. We meet every Tuesday at one. Um, and yeah, so I've got like tons of offerings online, just clairebidwellsmith.com or on Instagram. My <laughs> friend Ricky recommended your book because she went through a loss a few years ago. And I think she's taken your grief group or she wants to take it. So awesome. Th- the grief group can it be any kind of grief? Does it have to be apparent death? What nope. is it? It's okay. just totally open. Drop in anything, anyone. Allegro, we're going. Like, <laughs> you'll see me there. <laughs> you'll, see me, you'll, you'll see me tomorrow. I was so. like, I... <laughs> She's like, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Never getting rid of them. Claire, thank you so much. Yeah, like, this was incredible. Thank you, guys. You're the best. And I'm very serious about coming to your 
grief group. Yeah, absolutely. I feel Thank happy. you guys for the work you do and just talking about topics like this. It's so important. So thank you. Bye, Sad Girls. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and subscribe and follow our show. It's the way that we can get the word out about our Sad Girl podcast and more Sad Girls can find their community. And if you'd like to follow us on other platforms, we're on Instagram at Sad Girls Who Read and TikTok at Sad Girls Good Books. We love you, sad girls.